Welcome to the Faith Life Fellowship Podcast with Dr. Scott Forrest. Today, Dr. Forrest presents part six of the series, Tools of Prayer for America. Say it with me. We're a church growing and thriving, overflowing with love, strengthening the family, transforming the community, impacting the world, where every member is a minister and a church alive is worth the drive. Let me hear you. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Well, today we're going to be talking about tools of prayer for America, part six. Amen. And for those who might have missed some of the sessions, I encourage you to go to our podcast. Listen to the series from the beginning. Go back and listen to any episodes you might have missed, especially the very first one. The whole reason we started this series is because I had a prophetic dream on the 6th of July while Trisha and I were visiting our daughter in New Orleans. And in that dream, the Lord asked me to do three things. Number one, issue a call to prayer for America. Amen. Number two, honor the prayers of our forefathers, especially the prayers of President Abraham Lincoln. And number three, issue tools of prayer that Christians can use to pray more powerfully and more effectively for America. Amen. Hallelujah. I asked the Lord when I woke up from the dream, why the urgency? I had such a sense of urgency when I woke up from that dream. I said, why the urgency? I know we need to pray for America, but why the urgency? And this is what I heard him say in my spirit. Jesus is the light of the world, but America is the conveyor of that light to the nations. As America goes, so goes the world. Therefore, pray for America. Amen. Hallelujah. There is a darkness, and I've said this many times, I'll say it again. There is a darkness that threatens to overtake us as a nation. And in order to push back that darkness, we need to pray that righteousness, truth, and justice prevail in America. Amen? In every sphere of influence, in every city, in every state, in every territory, in every election, whether it's local, state, or federal. This is especially true concerning the upcoming fall midterm elections. Amen? You need to vote, Christian. It is your duty to set politics aside and pray that righteousness, truth, and justice prevail in America. I don't care what your politics are, but if you're a born-again Christian, you need to search your heart when you look at the candidates that are before you and ask the Holy Spirit, which of these, Lord, will be standards of righteousness in the legislature, in the governorships, or whatever you're voting for? Which of these men and women will stand for righteousness, truth, and justice, and life in America. That's the person or persons you need to vote for. Amen? You need to vote for life. Vote to defend the unborn. That's about as easy a policy objective that you could ever pray for. Pray for life. Pray for life. I don't know anybody that really knows Jesus that thinks it's all right to go into the womb of a mother and tear her little baby out part by part. I don't know anybody that believes that that's right. So you pray and you vote for people who will stand for the unborn. You should also vote to preserve our God-given freedom of speech and religion. You know, they're under assault right now. There are forces out there that want to silence you as a believer because they don't want to hear what you have to say. 
They want you to hear what they have to say, but they don't want to hear what you have to say. It's in our Constitution. We have the right to assemble and worship God the way we please, to share our faith with others. Amen. Hallelujah. How else would the gospel propagate if we're not able to share our faith with others? Amen. Now, remember, this is a little bit of a rabbit trail, but it's a good one. When I was still serving in the Air Force Reserve, I was with the B-52 squadron there at Barksdale Air Force Base in Louisiana, and uh, they knew that I was a preacher. And we had a big function. It was a big dinner. There were hundreds of people there. And they asked me, would I pray over the function to sort of kick it off? And I sort of told, make sure you're careful about the way you pray. You know, in other words, they didn't want me to pray in the name of Jesus. Now, this is the Air Force, and I'm I'm sad to report to you. I spent 21 years flying for the Air Force Reserve, and they were first to go politically correct of all the military services. I'm so disappointed in them, even to this day. Okay, but you know what I did? I got up there and I prayed over the festivities. I prayed over the food. And at the very end, I said, and in the mighty and matchless name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. I thought, what can they do? Shave my head, send me to Beirut and fly helicopters over enemy territory. I've already done that. Amen. (laughs) Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. So getting back to the dream. The Lord gave me a giant toolbox in the dream. It's a big old gray toolbox, just like most of us have in our garage somewhere. And thank God in the dreams, you're a lot stronger than you are in real life because I could I could uphold this thing. It looked like it weighed about 500 pounds. And the Lord had me balance it on a long, narrow table in such a way that it formed a cross. And then I opened the toolbox and the Lord said, now issue tools of prayer to the people so they can pray for America more powerfully and more effectively. So that's where this whole teaching series came from. And here are the six things that the Holy Spirit brought to my attention. Tools that were not being used by the body of Christ, but were available to the body of Christ. Number one, binding and loosing. Number two, the prayer of agreement. Number three, the name of Jesus. Number four, the blood of Jesus. Number five, fasting and prayer. And number six, spirit-led prayer. And as I've said before, you can use these tools to pray for yourselves, of course, your families and your fellow saints. But our focus in this series is how we can use these tools to better pray for America. Amen? So far, we've discussed the prayer of binding and loosing the prayer of agreement, and the name of Jesus. This morning, we're going to talk about the blood of Jesus and what it means to plead the blood of Jesus. Now, I'm asking you, Dan, did you know we were going to talk about the blood of Jesus when you picked that song, Oh, Come to the Altar? What was bought with the precious blood of Jesus? Amen. Hallelujah. The Holy Ghost knows what he's doing. Amen. Because that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. It may be quick, it may be slow, but we're going to get through it, amen. And it may take a while to get to the point of pleading the blood, but just just hang with me because you you got to understand why it is biblical to plead the blood, why it is scriptural to plead the blood. 
you know, there are people out there that don't believe it's a scriptural practice to plead the blood of Jesus. They say things like, well, show me that in the King James Bible. Well, I'm like, the word Trinity doesn't appear in the King James Bible, but you believe that, don't you? The word rapture doesn't appear in the King James Version, but you believe that, don't you? Come on, Christian, use your brain. Use a little bit of logic. (laughs) Examine the Scriptures and the whole counsel of God. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to step you through a process, and I'm going to show you scripturally and logically it's a scriptural practice to plead the blood of Jesus. Glory to God. The blood of Jesus is something most Christians have heard about but don't truly understand. And to be honest, I don't think any of us have a complete understanding of the power and the mystery of the blood of Jesus. But we got to start somewhere, amen? we got to have a basic fundamental understanding of the blood if we're ever hopeful of understanding the depths of the mystery and the power of the blood. So we'll begin with the fundamentals. Adam and Eve had everything. They were perfectly created in the image of God the Father. They were provided with everything in the garden paradise of Eden. They walked and talked with God, and their every need was met. There was no sin. There was no sickness. There was no poverty. There was no death. Amen. Hallelujah. It was just a fantastic zoological garden that they were free to explore, and they could go anywhere and do anything they wanted to do. I got to thinking about that last night. They could go ride the horses. They could go play with the lions and the bears. They could do anything they wanted to do. They could jump in a waterfall. They could just have the time of their life. There was just one thing the Lord told them they couldn't do. Amen. Just one thing. Genesis chapter 2, verse 16 and 17, if you want to follow along in your Bible or on your device. Amen. Hallelujah. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Now, in the Hebrew, that last phrase... In the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Actually, it's literally translated like this. In the day that you eat of it, in dying, you shall die. The implication there is there will be a double death. You will die, and then you will die. And you know the story. Eve was tricked by the devil into partaking of that fruit, and then Adam joined in and ate from it as well. And they sinned. They fell from grace. And they died spiritually and were separated from God. Amen. And the process of death began to work in their bodies and in their minds, corrupted their souls and their bodies. And eventually, after a period of over 900 years, they died physically. But their death happened the moment they partook of that fruit. They spiritually died and then it was inevitable that they would die physically. In dying, you shall die. Amen. Hallelujah. I'm not saying amen to in dying, you shall die. I'm saying amen to the fact that the Bible is an awesome book. Amen. And if you can look into it a little bit further than just a surface reading, you can really understand some things. Amen. Glory to God. 
And let's go on to Genesis 3-7 to accelerate. And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. Now, fess up, how many of you watched the program Naked and Afraid? Or you've watched it as you went through the channels? You ever seen the stuff they try to cover their nakedness with? It's not working. (laughs) Otherwise, the camera wouldn't have to do that little blotchy thing, you know. So when I I think about Adam and Eve making fig leaf garments to cover their nakedness, I'm thinking of naked and afraid because they were now naked and afraid. They were afraid of the presence of God, and they were naked, and they realized it for the first time. Amen. Hey, you know what? Nobody raised their hand when I said, who watches naked and afraid? (laughs) Whatever the Holy Ghost allows you to do, I can't watch it. First of all, they're stupid. (laughs) Second of all, they're naked, okay? So for those reasons, Brother Scott cannot watch that show. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. So how many would agree that fig leaves are not going to cut it to cover your nakedness? Genesis 3.21. Unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothe them. Now, you could read your Bible and you could just pass that scripture on by and not realize what's going on there. It's a very profound and deep principle that's being displayed in that verse. Okay, you know that in order for those skins to be applied to their body to cover their nakedness, that animals had to die. Blood had to be shed to provide for their clothing. Okay, Not just blood, but innocent blood. You know, because of Adam, the Bible says the ground was cursed for his sake. And also, if you read the whole story, all of creation was cursed, even the animal kingdom, even though they didn't do anything wrong. Okay? So... They were innocent in the sense that they didn't do anything wrong, although the curse did come to them and death came to them as well. But it was a type that God was establishing right there in the garden. And I personally believe that he killed the animals and he skinned them right in front of Adam and Eve so that they realized from the very beginning that God was establishing a principle that it took the shedding of innocent blood to forgive sin. So it goes all the way back to the garden. Glory to God for the revelation of the word. Hallelujah. And then Abel offered up a blood sacrifice, the son of Adam and Eve. First Cain, then Abel. Abel offered up a blood sacrifice that was accepted by God. And Cain offered up a fruit and grain sacrifice that was not accepted by God. And you can tell by the words that God spoke to Cain afterwards that he had to have known the right thing to do. Genesis 4, verse 6 and 7 in the New King James Version. So the Lord said to Cain, this is after he rejected his offering. So the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? In other words, If you do what I showed to your parents and what I know they showed to you, you would have gone to your brother Abel, who was a shepherd. You would have taken your fruit or your grain to him in exchange for an offering, 
and you could have offered an innocent blood sacrifice to me and yours would have been accepted as well. But you didn't want to do it the way that I taught you. You wanted to do it your own way. So Cain is a type of trying to approach God in your own righteousness. Amen. Abel is a type of a believer coming to God because of the blood of Jesus. Righteous only because of the blood of Jesus. Amen. And this was established back in the garden, even with Adam and Eve and their children. Hallelujah. Noah, when Noah got off the ark, the first thing he did was offer animal sacrifices for the sins of his family. Amen. They'd been on that boat for a whole year. And I guarantee you, arguments broke out and things didn't go the way they were supposed to go. You got animal stuff everywhere and cleaning had to be done. And I'm not sure how that was handled, but maybe it was on a rotational basis and maybe somebody in that loop didn't want to do their part. Amen. But there was reason to offer animal sacrifice after they got off that boat and Noah made sure it was the first thing that was done. Amen. Hallelujah. Genesis 8.20, so that you know it's in the Scripture. And Noah built an altar unto the Lord and took of every clean beast and of every clean fowl and offered burnt offerings on the altar. Amen. Again, that same principle passed down through the generations of man that it takes innocent blood to forgive sin. Moses, God spoke to Moses, and he formalized the practice of blood sacrifice through the laws that were given to him. Leviticus 17.11. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that maketh an atonement for the soul. So here, the practice of animal sacrifice is embedded in the law and formalized. And a little bit more instruction is given to Moses. There's life in the blood. And because there's life in the blood, you can use it as a type of the coming atonement for your souls. Amen? You know, a type foreshadows the coming real thing. Amen? And we'll talk about that when we get to it. Amen? So I want to talk about the life of the flesh is in the blood. It's an important concept that you understand, that you need to understand. When God breathed the breath of life into Adam, the life of God was carried throughout his body by the blood. Amen? The life of the flesh is in the blood. So when God breathed life into his body, the blood in Adam's body took the life of God to all parts of his body. Amen? There's something mysterious about blood blood is a natural thing but it also has supernatural components and one of the supernatural components of the original blood of man was the life of God flowed in that blood and I like to think about it like this if the life of the flesh was in the blood before sin then after sin you could say now the death of life was in the blood and in fact that poisoned blood was passed from Adam to all generations and every man and woman that's ever been born on planet Earth. There was no escape in it. David said it like this. I was altogether born in sin. He realized he was born in sin because of the line of Adam, because of the poisoned bloodline that was going throughout the generations. Amen. 
Glory to God. So let's talk about Jesus and the blood. Revelation 13, 8 refers to Jesus as the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. Amen. That just sounds cool. It not only sounds cool, but it's filled with revelation. And I want to say it again. Revelation 13, 8 refers to Jesus as the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. That word there, world, is the Greek word cosmos. The lamb that was slain before the cosmos was created. Amen. Before space and time were created. Before the universe as we know it was created. And in fact, the definition of the Greek word cosmos is the universe as we know it. The universal order as we know it. Jesus was the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the universe as we know it. Amen. Glory to God. So think about it. I've said it about four times because I want you to think about it. Think about it. This means that God knew before he created the universe that evil would come as a result of the wrong choices of angels and of men. He knew it was coming, and he had a plan prepared ahead of time to deal with evil. He had a plan already prepared in his bosom to send a man, unlike any other man, that could be the perfect sacrifice that would satisfy the demands of God's justice and enable him to bring salvation to all mankind. It was decided that the Word of God, the second person of the Trinity. Remember, before Jesus took on flesh, the Trinity or the Godhead was God the Father, God the Word, and God the Holy Ghost. After Jesus took on flesh, became a man, the Trinity morphed into God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. Now, the Son is still the living Word, so it's still proper to say that it's God the Father, God the Word, and God the Holy Ghost, as long as you realize that Jesus, the God-man, is the living Word of God. Amen. Hallelujah. Glory to God. So it was decided that the Word of God, who existed in eternity with God, as a part of the Godhead, part of the Trinity, he would take on flesh, become a man, and be the perfect sacrifice required for the salvation of mankind. Amen. I'm laying a foundation here, so stay with me. I know most of you know this, but it's a good refresher. For Jesus to be the perfect, innocent sacrifice for our sins, his blood had to be free of the poison of sin that was passed down through the line of Adam. Amen? So how did God do that? Well, he very cleverly designed human beings so that no blood ever passes from a mother to the baby in her womb. So it was not physiologically possible for Mary, the mother of Jesus, to pass her tainted blood to the son inside her womb. Because once the egg is fertilized, It becomes a human embryo which develops its own heart and its own blood supply separate and distinct from the blood of the mother. Isn't that awesome? God knew what he was doing. So the other side of the equation is this. The egg that became an embryo that eventually became Jesus could not be fertilized by a man because the blood type of the baby is determined by the father. Because the blood that was produced inside the embryo would have originated from the father's blood and the taint of sin would be passed to the baby 
from the Father. That's why God had to be Jesus' Father. And that's what the angel Gabriel told to Mary in Luke chapter 1, verse 34 and 35. Then said Mary unto the angel, after she was told she was going to be pregnant with the Son of God. Then said Mary unto the angel, how shall this be, seeing I know not a man? In other words, how can this happen? All I've been taught all my life is that for a woman to have a baby, she has to have relations with a man. How shall this be, seeing I know not a man? And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. God had to be the Father of Jesus to ensure that his blood was pure. Amen? It also brings up the awesome point that it was the blood of God that flowed through the veins of Jesus the man. The pure, perfect blood of God himself. Amen. Hallelujah. Glory to God. It just illustrates just how special and how powerful the blood of Jesus is. If, now listen to this. If the life is in the blood and Jesus' blood came from God, then it was no ordinary blood. The very life of God was flowing through the veins of Jesus. Amen. When Jesus poured out his blood on that whipping post and on that cross, he poured out the very life of God for all of mankind. I was thinking about that last night, and I, was, I came to tears at the thought of it. Praise God Almighty for the blood of Jesus. Hallelujah. Thank you that Jesus was willing to pour it all out for us. Amen. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Jesus. Now, when Jesus was raised from the dead, he gathered up all his blood. I don't know how he did it, but the Bible says he did. He gathered up all his blood and he went into the heavenly holy of holies and poured that blood out on the mercy seat of heaven. Glory to God. And he settled the sin question once and for all. Hebrews 9.22. Hebrews 9.22 states that without the shedding of blood, There is no remission of sins. Again, reminding us that innocent blood has to be shed if sin is to be forgiven. Amen. Now, here in the book of Hebrews, we see that the type represented by animal sacrifices throughout the Old Testament and the shedding of innocent blood that dated all the way back to Adam is fulfilled in Jesus, who offered his own blood unto God as the final perfect sacrifice for us all. Amen. Hallelujah. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12. And I'm going to read this in the King James. I'm going to read it in two other translations because I want you to get this. There's a lot of misunderstanding about this. Hear me out. Hebrews 9, 12 in the King James. Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Okay, now even in the King James, you can see that the sin question, according to this verse, was settled once that blood was applied to the mercy seat of heaven. Sin would never again be an issue. If the wrath of God abides on you, the Bible says it abides on you because you've rejected the Son of God. You've rejected the solution for the sin that is in your life. 
He's not holding your sin against you. I know that that's not religious and that's not preached. The only thing he's holding against you is will you or will you not accept my son because he paid the price so you wouldn't have to pay the price for your sins. Glory to God. Glory to God. Now I want to read it to you in the common English Bible. He entered the Holy of Holies once for all by his own blood, not by the blood of goats or calves, securing our deliverance for all time. New Living Translation. With his own blood, not the blood of goats and calves, he entered the most holy place once for all time and secured our redemption forever. Amen. Now, the thing I want you to see is the Bible clearly teaches when Jesus poured out that blood on the mercy seat, the sins of all mankind, past, present, and future, were forever washed by the blood of Jesus. The question of sin was forever settled. I'll say it again. When Jesus poured out his blood on that mercy seat of heaven, all the sins of mankind, past, present, and future, were forgiven. Amen. Washed clean by that blood. Now you say to me, well, you know, some people don't believe that. Some people believe that, you know, when you get born again, when you accept Christ, Jesus is Lord and Savior, that all the sins you've committed up to that point are forgiven. But then after that point, if you mess up, if you trip up, if you sin, you better be prayed up. You better confess that sin as soon as you can. Because if something was to happen to you, you'd go to your death with that sin, unforgiven, not under the blood, and you go straight to hell. Let me just tell you right now, that is a lie from the pit of hell. Now, I want you to put your logic hat on. Put your logic hat on. Don't even think religious. Just think logically, all right? Jesus took his blood 2,000 years ago and poured it out on the mercy seat. And the Bible said he secured our redemption forever. For all time, right there. So I'm going to prove to you logically that future sin has been forgiven by Jesus. 2,000 years ago when that blood was poured out, you were not even born. You hadn't committed a single sin. All your sins were in the future. So logically speaking, you can see that future sin had to be covered by the blood of Jesus or we wouldn't have been covered. Amen? So, yes, the Bible makes it very clear. Once for all time, the blood of Jesus washed you clean of all your sin, past, present, and future. Amen. You don't have to go around worrying about messing up, missing it every once in a while, which we all do, and then somehow ending up in hell. You know? That's, what kind of life is that to live? It is bondage. We have to have full assurance of salvation or this is a most miserable life. When Trisha and I were youth pastors in Minden, Louisiana, we had our drummer. He was a very intense young man and he was a, he was a delightful young man, but he came out of Pentecostal holiness background. And so every week I had to deal with Sean's sin of the week that he was convinced was sending him to hell. You know, he would come to me, he said, Brother Scott, I smoked a cigarette yesterday, so I guess I better prepare for hell. Like, are you, are you kidding? Who told you that? 
Did you ask God for forgiveness? Yeah. Then he forgave you. Do you repent? Yeah. Then he forgave you. It's, it's, it's over. It's, it's not an issue. So, now listen, I'm just going to warn you ahead of time that I'm going to cuss in church. Okay? Okay? And because this is a real word. Okay? It is a real word. All right? Just so preparing you. Okay? So one day, Sean's parents didn't come to youth. They didn't come to that church. So we would always give Sean a ride home. We would pick him up, and we would take him home. You know? And so all three of my daughters are in the car, and we got Sean in the back, and we're driving him home. And he says, Brother Scott, you'd be so proud of me. I said, what's going on, Sean? He said, I haven't said a cuss word in two weeks. I said, Sean, I'm damn proud of you. He's like, Brother Scott, aren't you afraid of what God will think? Like, you know, Sean, I'm just trying to make a point here. It's not what you do or don't do that determines your eternal destiny. It's who you are. If you're a born-again child of God, you're going to be with him when you die. Even if you had an argument with your wife that morning and you didn't make up and something happened, you're going to heaven. Because your sins have been forgiven, past, present, and future, and because you are righteous and holy on the inside. Now, you can argue with me if you want to. Just don't do it right now. <laughs> we can talk after service. Okay. Amen. Thank you, Jesus, for your blood. Amen. Glory to God. Later on, he said, I see what you're saying. It's not what you do or don't do. It's who you are. If you're a child of God, when you die, you're going to be with him. If you're a child of the devil, when you die, you're going to be with him. That's all there is to it. Amen. I hope somebody, if you've been struggling with that, that settled the issue for you. Hallelujah. So let me say it again. Hebrews 9.12 tells us that if you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then your sins, past, present, and future, have been washed clean by the precious blood of Jesus. Amen. So let's talk about pleading the blood. Took us a while to get there, but we're here. Hallelujah. So with all this in mind, what does it mean to plead the blood of Jesus? Well, let me build my case for pleading the blood of Jesus by beginning with Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, verse 8 and 9. This is just the way the Holy Spirit showed it to me. I know there's other paths to explaining Pleading the blood, but this is my path, the one the Lord gave me. Romans 5, verse 8 and 9. But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Did you get that? We've been justified by his blood and saved from wrath through Christ. To be justified means to be made righteous and holy, just if I'd never sinned. Justified. Just if I'd never sinned. You probably heard that before, but it's a great way to remember what it means to be justified. Amen. To be saved from wrath means that you've been saved from all the wrath associated with being an unregenerate sinner. Amen. John the Baptist said in John 3.36, 
He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. I don't know about you, but I don't want anything to do with the wrath of God in my life. Amen. One more thing. The word translated as saved in this verse is the Greek word sozo. Sozo. You've been saved from wrath. Well, what does it mean to be saved? The Greek word sozo means to deliver, to protect, to heal, to preserve, to save, to make whole. Putting it all together into one coherent statement. If you've made Jesus your Lord, you've been delivered, protected, healed, preserved, saved, and made whole by the precious blood of Jesus. Amen. Hallelujah. Now, the word plead means to contend for or to strive for, and it's most commonly associated with legal settings. When you go to court and you're the defendant, the judge says, you've heard the charges against you. How do you plead? Guilty or not guilty? So to plead is to make your case to the judge. If you're not guilty, you plead not guilty. But in our case, in the court of heaven, the verdict has already been rendered. We've been declared innocent, not guilty, because of the blood of Jesus. We don't have to make the case to the judge. God the Father is the judge, and he already knows about the blood of Jesus. He saw it poured out on the mercy seat. He remembers that day. Amen. But listen, Satan and his band of outlaws, even though they've been defeated, they will still challenge you from time to time concerning what belongs to you as a born-again, blood-washed child of God. This is why you need to plead the blood. You need to declare to the atmosphere so that God and his angels can hear it and Satan and his angels can hear it that you're appropriating what the blood bought for you. Amen. You're pleading the blood. Amen. Getting ahead of myself. One of the ways we can enforce their defeat is by pleading. I'm talking about the the principalities, the powers, the wickedness in high places. One of the ways we can enforce their defeat is by pleading the blood of Jesus. When the enemy comes against you with accusations or threatens you with physical harm, we can say to the enemy, the verdict has been rendered. I have been and I remain delivered, protected, healed, preserved, saved, and made whole. I've got exhibit A in my hand, the precious blood of Jesus. Amen. I plead the blood of Jesus unabashedly and unashamedly. Now, listen, you can say it any way you want to. You can say, I apply the blood. I appropriate the blood. I have what the blood bought for me. Or you can be old school like me and say, I plead the blood of Jesus. It just has a great sound to it. Amen. Hallelujah. Glory to God. But the meaning is the same. You are appropriating the deliverance, the protection, the healing, the preservation, the salvation, the wholeness that was purchased for you by the precious blood of Jesus. So how can we apply this truth in our prayers to America? Simply put, we can plead the blood of Jesus over America. Amen. We can appropriate the deliverance, the protection, the healing, the preservation, the salvation, and the wholeness that was bought for America with the precious and powerful blood of Jesus. Amen. Now, I'm going to pray a sample prayer, just like we've been doing, where I'm going to pray for America, 
and I'm going to plead the blood of Jesus over America. All right, here we go. Heavenly Father, our nation is under attack. There is a war underway for the soul of America. We see that darkness threatens to overtake us, and we resist that darkness in the name of Jesus. We say no weapon formed against us shall prosper, for the blood of Jesus is a protecting shield over the United States of America. We plead the blood over our infrastructure, over our institutions, over our people, and over our leaders. We plead the blood over the White House, over Congress, over the Supreme Court, and over every state government as well. We plead the blood of Jesus over the Church of America. We say the plans and purposes of the enemy against our government and against the church will be thwarted because of the blood of Jesus. Because of the blood, we believe that deliverance, protection, healing, preservation, salvation, and wholeness come to our great nation. In Jesus' mighty name, we pray. And if you're in agreement, say amen. Amen. Glory to God. We hope you enjoyed part six of today's message titled, Tools of Prayer for America. If you would like to learn more about Faith Life Fellowship and to access more of Dr. Forrest's teachings, you can visit our website at gofaithlife.com. Also, visit and like our Facebook page at Faith Life Wilmington.